Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks for this opportunity that we have to come together and praise your name and give you glory and be reminded that in all the earth, the name of Jesus Christ is majestic. And we do lift up your name and we praise you and we thank you, God, that you have revealed yourself to us in your Son. And we thank you that you have given us your word, that by it we might be wise and we might honor you and we might follow uh, in his footsteps. And we thank you that you've given us your spirit to enable us to do that as well. And we thank you for this body. We thank you that we get to be a part of your people in this particular expression at Maricopa Springs. And I pray that we would be a church that is faithful to you and honors you. Lord, we pray that you would bless us as we look at your word this morning and as we remember these two great institutions that you have given the church, baptism and communion. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. All right, I'd love for you to open your Bible with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, we have them available on that uh, welcome table there. You're uh, encouraged to take one and you can keep it. Or you can always pull it up on your phone. But Ephesians chapter 4. I'm sure by now you know that we're going through this short series that we are calling Heartbeats. And we're looking at just five things that I believe are essential to the life of the church. Five things that like your heartbeat in your physical body, if the church were to cease doing these things, it would mean that the church would expire. The church would cease to function. So the first week we talked about how we as the church have a mission to declare salvation that is available to all people through the work of Jesus Christ and to make disciples who will follow in the footsteps of the way of Jesus. And then last week, we talked about how we must spend ourselves and be spent serving the body of Christ and serving Christ, the head of the body, as we put our gifts that God has given us to work um, for the good of his people. Well, today we're going to talk about the two sacraments of the church and we're going to talk about why these two sacraments are important to the heartbeat of the church. So sacrament is probably not a word that you use too often or even probably hear too often. And so let me offer you a definition for this word. A sacrament is a religious ceremony. Or it's a ritual that people do, an act of religious uh, devotion that people do to God in worship. Another word that we sometimes use instead of sacrament would be the word ordinance. And an ordinance is a directive that we are expected to follow as believers. So for us as Protestant Christians, we believe that there are two sacraments that have been given to the church. Two. The first one is baptism, and the second one is communion. Those are the two sacraments that we as Protestants adhere to. Now, I want to make a quick distinction before I move on here that is really important and will come back to play a little bit later. Catholics believe that there are seven sacraments. I held up five fingers. Seven sacraments. And uh, in addition to the seven sacraments, probably more importantly than the number, Catholics believe that those sacraments actually bestow grace upon the person engaging in the sacraments. 
you actually receive grace through the process of engaging in the sacrament. In other words, sacraments are a work that Catholics do in order to be given grace. And I want to mention this because this is a significant difference between Protestant Christians and Catholics. As Christians, we do not believe that sacraments give grace. Rather, we do sacraments because we have been given grace, and the sacraments remind us of the grace that we've already received. When we engage in baptism and communion, we don't believe that some kind of magical thing is taking place that causes grace to fall down from heaven upon us. Instead, we believe that the grace of God has already been poured out on us who believe in the fullest measure because Christ atoned for our sins and made a way for us to be reconciled to God. In other words, Jesus bestows grace, and the grace that he gives us is all the grace that we need. There's nothing to add to that. And so in keeping the sacraments then, we honor Jesus for the work that he has done, and we are obedient to his command, and we joyfully give him worship through these things. We do them in response to his love and his grace. So with that as sort of an introduction, let's read our passage of scripture here from Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. In thinking through this together, let's begin at the beginning in verse 1 here, where Paul urges the people of God to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. Well, what is this calling that he's talking about? I think sometimes in churches you hear that, you know, God called me to do this or called me to do that. But this is a concept that applies to all believers right here. What have we as Christians been called to? I would say that there's lots of right answers to that question. We've been called into the kingdom of God. We've been called out of darkness. We've been called to be a holy people, a royal priesthood. We've been called to surrender our lives to Jesus. All of those things are true. Those are all right answers. But I want to assert this morning that a major aspect of what we have been called to is we've been called into fellowship with God. We've been called into the one family of God. Maybe you remember this verse from 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. I taught on it back in November as we were going through 1 John. John tells us, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. We're called into the family of God. And the Apostle Paul says something kind of similar in 1 Corinthians 1.9. He says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We've been called into fellowship. So what I'm suggesting is that when God called us out of darkness and into his kingdom, 
into this one faith, one Lord, one spirit, one baptism. He was calling us into fellowship with him. This is why then in verses 2 and 3, Paul uses these descriptive words. If you'll look there, he says humility and gentleness and patience and love. And he uses these words in talking about this one faith that we have because these are the kinds of attitudes and actions that distinguish the people of God, that mark them out as belonging to this one family that we've been called into. Our calling into fellowship with God produces in us a particular kind of life. And if that sounds familiar, it's because I said it a lot as we were going through 1 John. We've been brought into fellowship with God through the work of Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of God now dwelling in us produces out of us in our lives a particular kind of life that actually looks like the life of Jesus. That fits these kinds of words, humility, gentleness, patience, and love. And if those sound familiar, it's because maybe you know that passage in Galatians chapter 5 that talks about the fruit of the Spirit. These are some of those very same words listed in Galatians 5. Love, patience, peace, and gentleness. These are the kinds of things that make the family of God, the fellowship of God, distinct from the world. And they define the terms of our relationships with one another because our relationship with one another is defined by our relationship with God. Right? It's the outpouring or the overflow of what God has done through his son Jesus to make his spirit dwell in us. And so what I'm getting at is we've been given a place at the table of God because we are children of God. We've been called into fellowship. We belong to God. And this is where Paul takes us, I think, kind of in the second half of the verses that we've looked at this morning. Look again at verses 4 through 6. Let me read them. I think as a result of being called into this fellowship, Paul then asserts, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So our fellowship with God, this oneness of the family of God and our union with this God, I want to uh, present to you this morning that all of that is sort of represented in these two great sacraments that the church engages in them, engages in. So one of them, baptism, is explicitly named in these verses. You can see it there in verse 5, right? We're called into one baptism. The other one, communion, I think is certainly implied here when we Think about the fact that Jesus is our Lord, and we, through the symbol of his body and blood, take his life into us because he is in all and through all and over all. So let's talk more specifically about the sacraments themselves, okay? Both are commanded in Scripture. These are commands that Jesus himself gave to his followers. In Matthew 28, Jesus tells his followers, that they must go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, we're given sort of another view of this. We're told 
that uh, this is a regeneration of washing or a washing of regeneration. And it's connected to the indwelling Holy Spirit. So in other words, here's what I'm getting at. Baptism is a physical sign of a spiritual reality. Something that you cannot see, that you have entered into the family of God. Here now is a physical act that is representative of that spiritual reality. We've been born again into the kingdom of God. And then Romans 6 fleshes this out a little bit further for us and says that baptism corresponds to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you go down into the water as a type of death and you come back out uh, connecting yourself to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead. And this symbolizes our new life in Christ. We're no longer the person that we once were enslaved to sin, but instead now the Spirit of God is alive in us. And these are reasons why baptism has always been precious to Christians. They've done it since the very beginning in the book of Acts. And it's why it's essential for the life of the church. First, because Jesus commanded it. He told us to do it. But second, because it's this outward symbol that one has been born in the kingdom of God through the work of the Holy Spirit. So here's what I want you to understand. I want to say that baptism is the initiation of one's entrance into the kingdom of God. It's the initiation of the new believer into a life of following Jesus. As for communion, in Luke 22, verses 19 through 20, that's just one instance. It's recorded in other Gospels as well. But here Jesus is recorded telling his disciples that they should eat the bread and they should take a drink from the cup, the wine, and they should do it in remembrance of him. And that's echoed by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which is the passage that I usually use when we take communion together. Paul's teaching on the uh, proper heart attitudes that are necessary when someone engages in communion. And, And what we see there is that Paul is perpetuating what Jesus gave to his disciples. So this is something that the apostles felt should be a perpetual ordinance that the church should do in order to remember Christ. So communion is essential to the church because it reminds us that we belong to a new covenant between man and God. The terms of this covenant are not made by us. They're made by God, and he himself has completed all of them. And it's an everlasting covenant, a covenant of God's everlasting love for his people. And we're blessed to simply receive that, not because of anything that we have done, but simply because our God is a God of grace and his son Jesus shed his blood that we might be redeemed. And in giving his body and his blood as a sacrifice, Jesus atoned for your sins. And he atoned for my sins. And we sit in fellowship with God at his table because the Son of God surrendered his life in order that we might be made into a people who are holy, worthy of God's fellowship, not by our own merits, but by the merit of Christ, the Son of God. And so the sacrament of communion then is also absolutely essential to the body of the church, the life of the church. It's a perpetual reminder of this new covenant that we have entered into, 
a covenant that's unalterable, that's unbreakable, that's unfailable, because God himself has already provided for all of the terms. And so when we take communion, every time we do that, we are remembering the fellowship that we have with God through the atoning work of Jesus, his son. We're reminded of what Jesus taught in John chapter 6. Let me read this. Jesus said, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will receive life because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now, let me remind you of something that I said at the beginning. Catholics believe that they actually receive grace through the sacraments. But we as Protestants believe that we have already received all of the grace of God apart from the sacraments. So another way that I could say that, friends, is that baptism and communion do not save you. They are not instruments or means of grace. Grace alone saves us. And even the wonderful works of baptism and and communion, as, as meaningful and as powerful as they are, they can add nothing to the grace of God. They can add nothing to the redemptive work of Christ. They add nothing to the blood of Jesus. But they do function as physical mirrors of a spiritual reality. And in that way, they're a reminder. So, baptism and communion remind us that we are born again into the kingdom of God. They remind us that we're cleansed of our sins. They remind us that we're children of God and we are his beloved. They remind us that we are God's redeemed treasure precious in his eyes. They remind us that we're blood-bought and we are forever clothed in the blood of Christ, that covenantal love that he has for us. They remind us that we're free from condemnation and we are no longer slaves to sin. Baptism and communion remind us that we're a new creation and we've been remade for his glory. And the only thing necessary For us to receive all of these things, all of these benefits, is simply faith in Jesus Christ. And so all of what these sacraments point to, what they mean and what they symbolize, I want you to remember that's ours by grace alone because of our faith in the Son of God. Okay, now, after all that, maybe you're still unclear. Why are they essential, Grady? I'm not sure yet that you have made the case that if the church fails to do these things, then the church dies. If these aren't just symbols, or I'm sorry, if these are just symbols, and they don't actually confer grace to us, then why is it necessary that we do them? So I want to give you three reasons why it's necessary, why it's essential for the life of the church that we do these things. The first one is because doing these things Baptism and communion brings great glory to God. I hope that whatever your church background is, that if you've been going to church for a while, 
that you hear this, that the purpose of the church is to bring glory to God. When Jesus is magnified and praised for all that God has done, all that God has achieved to bring about the salvation of man, then God is greatly glorified and he is worthy of glory. In getting baptized, we admit our sin, we admit our need for repentance, we admit our need for a savior, and we acknowledge that we are spiritually dead apart from Christ. And in doing that, we point to Jesus as the only hope for the salvation, the problem, the only fix for the problem that we have. Going down into the water and coming back up, we also point to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the solution to the horrific sin issue that we are mired in. And the truth is, mankind was created to glorify God. God made you for his glory. And the church exists to glorify God. And if we don't give glory to God by faithfully doing the sacraments of baptism and communion, then I think inevitably what happens over time is that the church is going to forget the purpose of its existence. The church is going to forget that we are here for God's glory. And when the church stops proclaiming the glory of God, the church dies. The second reason we need to be faithful to keep the sacraments is because we need to remember. Man, the number of times that God calls his people to remember throughout Scripture is astounding. We all too easily forget that by faith alone in Jesus Christ and by his grace is the only reason that we are God's beloved children. See, after a while, I guess maybe this is just me, but I'm assuming you go through this as well. But after a while, it can be tempting to think, you know what, I'm, I'm pretty good at this. I see why God picked me. I, I, I'm guessing that God must have just known how good I would be at following Jesus. And that's why, you know, among this crowd of people, he chose me. Because nobody else really cares as much as I do about truth or righteousness or goodness or God's glory. See, we can be tempted in time to think that we got here because we understood how horrible sin is. And we recognized that something needed to be done about it. And so we chose to turn to God. But the reality is, in, in baptism, uh, we remember that our place in the kingdom of God is by grace. In communion, we remember that what got us here was the sacrifice of Christ. You know, when you get baptized or when you watch somebody else get baptized or you remember your own baptism, you remember that first love that you had. You, you remember what was so appealing about the gospel. When God opened our eyes to see. When we realized that God loved the unlovely like me. That he was the initiator not because of me, but in spite of me. And in taking communion, we're brought face to face again and again with the horror of the crucifixion. God paid a very great price to redeem you. The perfect Son of God died to save wretched sinners. And when we take communion, we are reminded of the ruinous plague that sin is. 
and we are inspired to run from it. And we're brought into a joyful worship of our king who loved us so fiercely that no price was too great for him to pay that we would be redeemed. When the church stops being faithful to the sacraments of baptism and communion, then the church begins to think that man actually deserves the favor of God. The church forgets that we were dead and we were under wrath, but God had mercy and God saved sinners because God is gracious and kind. So when the church stops remembering grace, the church dies. The third final reason that the church needs to be faithful to do these things is because God told us to. I hope you know this, but to be a Christian is to commit yourself to a life of obedience to Jesus. I hope that wherever you have gone to church, they've made that very clear. The Christian faith could rightly be summarized in this way. We are saved by grace for a life of obedience. We are saved by grace for a life of obedience. And in a way, baptism stands as the first great act of obedience. I know that we don't always kind of culturally baptize people immediately when they say, I believe in Jesus. Um, Maybe we should keep like a bottle of water in our back pocket so we can knock that out. Oh, I'm kidding. I don't want to stir up controversy about the method of baptism. Um, But look, when you read uh, Acts, you see that the method was typically when somebody professed belief, they got baptized. And so the point is, we place our faith in Jesus, and as our first great act of obedience, we get baptized. And the implication is that we are, in doing that, accepting the terms of relationship with God, that we will continue on in obedience to the one whose spirit now lives in us, empowering us to do that. And then we take communion as an ongoing command given by Jesus. And that act reminds us again and again and again that we've chosen to follow Christ, not merely to believe in him, but to go where he leads us. And it's an ongoing reminder that his body and his blood were given for us. Teaching us fresh each time that we still even now need grace. We still even now need forgiveness. And so we're called to a life of obedience, but we fail. And regularly remembering the body and blood of Jesus restores our souls with that gracious forgiveness once again, and it renews our resolve to leave the old behind and to pursue Christ in holiness. By his wounds, we're healed. And a church that gives up obedience, I hope you know where I'm going with this by now, a church that gives up obedience to the sacraments of baptism and communion, that's a church that eventually is going to give up obedience to all of the commands of Jesus. And without obedience, the church dies. So here's the application. It's very simple. Do these things. If you've not been baptized, but you call Jesus Lord and you profess faith in him, it's time to get baptized. Come talk to me and let's do that. Uh, And I would say that when it comes to taking communion, not only should you do communion, but I would encourage you as a believer that you should do communion rightly. So this is the second point of application. 
because these sacraments symbolize fellowship with God, because they symbolize that we are seated with God at his table, experiencing his hospitality, not just with God, but also with one another in community, then if you are out of fellowship with your brother or sister in Christ, you're actually, in a way, out of fellowship with God himself. And so you shouldn't take communion and lie if there's some kind of sin issue between you and another brother or sister in Christ. Instead, like Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, you should first go and be reconciled to that person and then come present your gift at the altar to honor God. If you're out of fellowship with the body of Christ, then you're out of fellowship with the head of Christ. And in all of these things, this is my third application, rejoice. This is momentous reason for rejoicing. These are holy rituals that belong to the church, and a lot of times we do them with a sense of somber sobriety, but there's no reason for them to be dull or gloomy. These are reasons for great rejoicing. These point us to God's love for us, his faithfulness to us. They remind us of the everlasting life that we have been given through Christ and the glory that we are still yet to see in the face of God in the kingdom to come. They remind us that we're children of God. And there's a lot of joy and hope and comfort in that truth. Through Christ, we've received grace upon grace. The Father in grace sent his Son into the world to redeem us. Jesus in grace gave his life for us. And the Spirit now continues to give us that grace as we walk in faithfulness. And in all these things, let's rejoice. So we're going to do communion now. Hopefully you've got your little cup Someday soon, we'll go back to our other methods of doing communion, but the last remnants of COVID, hopefully. So you can pull that thing out and open that top little layer and get your cracker. And if you don't have one and you need one, you can put your hand up and Aaron will bring you one. Thank you, Aaron. And look, after all that I just said, I need to remind you or point out that if you're not a believer, then... This is really not for you. Um, before this service, my son, who has been baptized and has taken communion, but he saw some extra communion things on the table back there, and he said, Dad, can I have one? And I was like, it's not a snack. <laughs> so no. Um, if you're not a believer, this is not for you. This is for those of us who call Jesus Lord and who have decided that we are going to follow him in obedience and if you're not a believer, you can become one. It's not difficult. You simply, in your heart, cry out to the Lord and ask him for rescue and salvation. And like that, he brings you into his kingdom and calls you his beloved and fills you with his Holy Spirit. So if you take that step, then you can join us in communion. This is for those of us who do believe and have given our lives to Jesus. It's an, an expression of our love for God. And it's an expression of our commitment to him. And it's also a reminder of God's love for us and a reminder of his commitment to us. 
So the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the text says, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads in prayer, and I'm going to close this in prayer. But before I do that, I'm going to just stand here quietly for a minute and give you an opportunity to simply confess your sins before the Lord and come before him in rejoicing and thanksgiving, giving him praise for everything that he's done for you. Let's pray. Father, we come before you with hearts full of rejoicing. We thank you that you have taken away our remorse and our regret. We thank you that you replace sorrow with rejoicing. We thank you that you count our sins against us no more because of the way Jesus paid the penalty for all the wrongdoing that we have done. And we just praise you for your kindness and your mercy. We thank you for your grace. And God, I pray that we would be people who are obedient to simply remember how much you love us and the price that you paid for us. And I pray that that remembrance would spur us on towards greater obedience and holiness. And I pray that it would fill our hearts with affection for you, that we would love you deeply in response to the love that you've given us. In Christ's name, amen.